0: Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is your host, Matthew Kirby, and welcome to a new season of the Young Black HR Podcast, brought to you and sponsored by Honest Human Resources Consulting. Our mission is to have meaningful conversations by amplifying voices and perspectives we need to hear in today's times. The Young Black HR podcast challenges how we define a human resource through discussion of our talents, abilities, and backgrounds that we bring to the table. Now I have one question for you. How are you a human resource? Enjoy today's episode. This one's on me. Hey, what's up? What's going on? Welcome back to another episode of the Young Black HR Podcast with your host. Y'all know how I do it by now. It's me, Matthew Kirby. And I'm so excited to not only be here today. I know, y'all, I know I say this every week, but it it really is going to be not only for a great conversation, low key. I feel like this one might stir the pot a little bit, but we got to talk about it anyway. So I'm excited for this conversation. This is going to be really good. Um, I always like talking about elephants in the room, and I'm very happy and confident that I got the right person to do it. So, y'all know me by now. Let's not waste any more time and jump right into it. Aubrey Blench is the Math Path. And for those of you that don't know, Math Path stands for Math Nerd plus Empath. Aubrey is the Director of Equitable Design and Impact at Culture M and a startup investor and advisor. She questions, reimagines and redesigns the systems that surround us to ensure that all people have access to opportunities, equitable that is. Her expertise covers talent, programs and accessible product development to event design and communications. She is the inventor of the balanced teams approach and the culture of belonging and the balanced teams diversity assessment in the Atlassian team playbook. She open sources these methods and releases thought leadership and tools to create positive change at, and I'm gonna let her shout out her own website later on the show. But in the meantime, you can find her at aubreyblanch.com. Aubrey, what's up? How you doing? How you feeling?
1: Hey! Thank you so much for having me. I'm like so jazzed to be here today. <laughs> like, Give me the questions. Let's go. This is gonna be so I, much fun.
0: Absolutely. This is uh this is gonna be a good one. You know, this is uh this is a topic I've been thinking about. I've of course talked about this not formally on the podcast before, but just in real life. You know, sometimes there's there's lots of levels and lots of depth and stuff. So I think when we think about you know skin tone and colorism and you know, lots of people have different backgrounds and things like that. How does that all kind of come together in positive and maybe not so positive ways when we think about uh, think about this from a DNI perspective? But look, before we get to all the meat and potatoes, you know, I I can't treat you any different, Aubrey. So I must ask, Aubrey, how are you a human resource?
1: Oh, how am I a human resource? Um i like to think that i'm kind of a never-ending font of like righteous anger but <laughs> um, right? so i'm like the little tiny engine that could <laughs> like this isn't right this isn't fair so um obviously i like do this sort of equity work now but i've always just as a person been really obsessed with the idea of like things are better if i share them like if we're all better like optimizing for the group is a better way to think about problems and so i think that's it like when people aren't working in that way aren't working in a communal way aren't thinking about people i just get really upset about it and get motivated to be like what can i do to help in some at least in some small way right not that i can fix anything on my own
0: absolutely and and you know what it's one of those things and for those of you that are listening maybe this is your first time listening to the episode maybe this is your 10th time you know me I always like to make sure that we're all on the same foot, y'all, but it's one of those things when I think about the why behind Young Black HR, we take a very non-traditional approach into how we discuss HR. You'll hear me say oftentimes, HR just isn't for HR folks. Everybody is HR Matt. What the hell are you talking about? What does that mean? So the way that we approach and have our discussions, our topics, our content is that we dare to challenge people and how they look at themselves. So when I ask Aubrey or someone else on the show, whoever my guest is, how are you a human resource? We have to begin to think about ourselves the skills the talents the abilities the gifts that we bring so collectively we are those human resources Albert, you know i gotta throw in my little my little uh psa just in case for folks that are newer to the platform but no this is a this is going to be exciting. You know, even even as we are getting ready to have this conversation, I'm just meditating. I'm just like, ooh, this is going to be interesting. So let's set the stage. You know what? I'm ready to get into it. Let's set the stage. When we think about the idea of proximity to whiteness, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So we're going to be tackling that. But also, you know what? I want to build the stage real quick. Let's set the foundation let's define a few things. When we think about white passing, what does that generally mean to you? How does that resonate? What kind of feelings do you get when you hear someone mention white passing?
1: Totally. So I I think the first time I ever heard the word white passing, I was like, oh, holy shit, there's a word for me. Like, Almost like I'm real. <laughs> um, and my dad is also white passing. So he's also mixed race, white and native. And, um, and when I like gave this language to him, he also had the same response. Like, oh, there, there's a category. There's like a name for this particular set of experiences of like carrying a lot of white privilege, having access to whiteness in a lot of ways but then also coupling that with like very racializing experiences and being very clearly told that you are, are not of the white people and like how to hold the complexity of that at the same time. So anyway, that's, so there's like the personal emotional thing where I'm like, oh, it's really useful for me to deconstruct and to understand my sort of social role in change. It's useful to have a language to be able to deconstruct that, I think
0: on like the most zoomed out level. Yeah, and, and, and you know what, you know, I think, you know, just as people and maybe in another life, you know, maybe I was a geneticist or something like that. It's so funny, even just being a parent, you know, how how different traits not only come together, right? When we, when we talk about the physical versus personality, but it's ultimately, I tell people this, you know, to a certain extent, we can't help how we was born. You know, we don't know. That, you know, one person is mixed versus the next when we get to that point. But even just thinking about, you know, this concept of not only white passing, but how does that for you, and I'm going to get to something else in a bit, but when we talk about proximity to whiteness, you begin to, you know, start to get us in the direction of, hey, you know what? you know we have some privileges sort of kind of not really is this kind of quasi whiteness is this a gray area you know how 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 does that manifest for you in your experiences
1: yeah so i would say like it it's such a weird experience because in so many ways there's at least for me i don't want to speak for all white passing people especially we can talk about the sort of assimilationist pressures that especially exist for white Latinx people. Um, But I think it's really important to acknowledge that passing is a contextual experience. So the same person can pass for white in like one context and not pass for white in another, Um, right? Like lots of people who are ethnically ambiguous or whose politics show up in a certain way or whatever. But I think um, when I think about those experiences, the experience of white passing means that like the biggest blind spot it creates, it had created in me. And so I feel kind of confident generalizing this is an understanding of colorism and the way that skin color specifically influences how someone is treated in the world. So, but what it does, I think where you see the commonality of experience is in creating those narratives around yourself. So the Mm -hmm. example I use is like growing up, the only like, role models I had that were Latinas were like maids or Catherine Zeta-Jones and Zorro, right? And so like I was <laughs> racialized, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that's sounds silly, but like I was racialized right. in a way that I was not given role models or those things, but I was blind to the idea that it was skin color that was actually also coloring those experiences in a really meaningful way.
0: No, and, and I, I really do agree with you when we think about, hey, you know what, everyone's experience is going to be different. But even just thinking about how we isolate that, I mean, there's there's a level of complexity. And I don't mean this in any kind of negative connotation, but even just when we think about and we'll talk more about this as we progress. But even just thinking about what are some of those implications and connotations to different different sets and different results of different races right much less the skin color but you know what I always got to define this and I'm definitely going to get your insight about this so when someone says colorism Aubrey let's just make sure everyone's on the same page Aubrey what's colorism to you what does that mean how does that how has that manifested
1: Yeah, thank you. So when we're talking about colorism, all we're talking about is the system of benefits or disadvantages or oppressions that are occurring based on the color of someone's skin. So thinking about racism has to do with both skin color and features as well as social categories. Colorism really looks specifically at literally just the tone of one's skin. The basic rule that you should know about colorism is that lighter is socially privileged and darker is socially disadvantaged. So that's kind of where we talk about white passing. White passing folks are like the most uh, colorism privileged of people in the BIPOC community, Um, whereas a dark-skinned, say, Black or South Asian person would be the least privileged.
0: um, Absolutely. No, and I, I think that takes so many different contexts. So even just being one that I've identifies as black, you know, we we come in so many different shades, colors, combinations. It's beautiful, right? We're like a whole rainbow even in ourselves. But it's one of those themes where, you know, we we've heard this in terms of our community, we of course, I know folks listening are about to be like, "Oh lord, what he about to say?" But, you know, we we've always heard, you know, since, you know, you know if you if we were back in the day you know the darker folks we'd be out in the fields oh you'd be in the house now i don't know if you'd be in the house but you'd be on the porch you know as we as we relate it back to kind of skin color things like that or even things about i know some folks can relate to this you know folks will be acting a certain way and be like you acting real light skin you know today you know you'd be like huh what does that mean right even just thinking about that, and it's so unique to not only our experiences, but even just thinking about how that looks for other races, other, other spaces, and different types of people, when we think about that skin tone, I'm really happy that you brought that up, you know, do you often, and let me back up, I'm going to get there in a second, but why don't I clarify for the good people out there that are listening and will be watching Aubrey, how do you identify when we talk about multiple races? Let's set set the stage Some.
1: Yeah, so um, I get to check all these weird boxes. So like in the new U.S. Census form, you know, I check white and Native American, but yes to being Hispanic. But um, my my family racial history is also funky. So my adoptive father is a citizen of of the Choctaw Nation. My adoptive mother is like second generation, like super European. Um, And my bio mom is actually Mexican American. So like I live at the intersection. I sometimes joke that I have like (laughs) the most American story Mm -hmm. ever. Um, But so yeah, so, but I think that like the identity that feels the most salient to me is Latina. Mm -hmm. So that's where like, when I look at things like you know, Chicana Latina feminism and things like that, I see the experiences that feel like mine most reflected.
0: Right. And you know what, here's the interesting thing. And, you know, this is how we understand that even this kind of topic, like most topics in young black HR, you know, there's always never enough time to really get into it. Otherwise we'd be here all day. But even as we think about you know, sometimes, depending on one situation, sometimes there's even a difference into how one identifies culturally, Mm -hmm. right? So with that being said, you know, yes, one person can be, you know, a race or multiple races, but they may identify as something completely different, whether we talk about, you know, culturally speaking, or even just how, how, they have their own proximity within, you know, social implications as well. So I think with that being said, one of the types of things that I always like to talk about and always like to wonder, even as for folks, because look, y'all, for those who are you that are watching, listening, I don't identify as mixed races. Now I'm sure in the in the grand scheme of genealogy, I'm sure there's some other folks in my in my history. I ain't found them yet, but I'm getting. It. But uh, with that being said, just being as someone as uh, and I'll oversimplify and say, you know, one single race, quote unquote, you know, do you ever find times in your life in the corporate spaces with folks that you identify with and really just interact with? Do you find it advantageous to code switch uh, as it relates to race? You know, do you you know, have it has anyone ever. And like, oh, you acting like a white girl. or Oh, you this Latina now today. Or, oh, you acting real native today. You know, what is that? And I know sometimes in this, you know, it can be stereotypical assumptions. Let's be real. But, you know, just thinking about that, what what is being at that funky intersection, right, that you talked about? What is that being like with having that idea or opportunity to be like, you know what, I'm going to switch and be like this, or I'm going to be like that.
1: Oh my gosh. So literally, I feel like you touched like a deep, tender part of my life, but I'm going to talk to you about <laughs> it. So no, like the word that just kept coming up for me as you were asking this really like beautiful question is gatekeeping. And what I mean by that is like, everybody's got an opinion about whether you're enough or something enough. So yeah, I think code switching is like, I would say I... I live at the intersection and I try really hard to like be authentically me, but whatever that means. But yeah, absolutely. Like the number of people who are like, you're not really Mexican. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, because you like listen to American pop music. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, what? Like those two things aren't like related or people will be like, oh, you know, you're not native enough because you didn't grow up on a reservation. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not representing like I did that. That was not my life story. So I think that's it. There's a lot of like where people are like, well, Mm -hmm. you don't match my perception of this person. And so therefore, let me challenge the legitimacy of your identity as opposed to like the stereotype I have about you in my head. Right. That's
0: that's a whole word. Say that again, Arby, for the people Mm -hmm. in the back.
1: Well, and I think this is not just, (laughs) let me be clear, this is not just true for right passing people, Mm -hmm. but I really feel like a lot of this like identity gatekeeping that happens in communities comes from this idea that you can be like enough of something, Mm -hmm. and what I often see is people have a stereotype and instead of being able to just like update that understanding when they get new info, they gatekeep the identity to avoid updating that mental model and it's weird to me because getting into sort of this racism colorism like that in and of itself this idea that we want to like cut up people like their horses or dogs is like a very white supremacist notion of like identity in the first place like
0: right it's like oh you're
1: one eighth this versus like (laughs) one sixteenth that it's like no right this and you're that
0: right and and you know what there's there's just so many levels of what you said I think it's I think it's really important and key to you know we have to as people we have to be better at number one not making assumptions always sometimes it's hard not making an excuse for it and sometimes it's unconscious but even just thinking about how we as people should consider unlearning a few things to relearn, right? It's one of those things where even just how I grew up and everybody knew by now, you know, I'm from North Carolina, I'm from down South, if I looked at you, I'd be like, oh, okay, who's this cool white girl, right? You know what I mean? So it's just one of those things, it's like, you know, sometimes we go off of what we see, but we also need to be mindful that what we see isn't always what it is. We shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And I think with that being said, we tend to we tend to see as people, I feel like maybe this is just me, you know, we tend to see uh people who are at these very unique intersections really benefit or even use this to their advantage when we think about the workplace, right? If it's one of those things where, you know, your interviewer or your hiring manager thinks that you white or you know, versus someone who may have a darker skin tone? What if you get different preferential treatment, right? What if you have a better experience, right? All because, of course, they made an assumption, the wrong assumption in this case. But how, and this kind of leads me to this, you know, for those who are mixed race out there, I want you to think about this as well. You know, how can mixed race individuals be allies for folks who aren't mixed race or for folks who aren't as, you know, either light skin or maybe that has a darker tone. How does allyship kind of fit into all that?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. The way I think about it is, and I think in like math terms, so I have a little proportional sign like going for you, folks on the podcast. (laughs) But like, I think the level of risk that we, we should be taking on behalf of our community should be proportional to the level of privilege that we like enjoy. So like, I have a higher expectation of fellow white passing folks than I do darker folks because we benefit from those systems in certain ways. And what I would hope people see, and this is how I like to think about it. I don't know if for better or worse, people judge me, but it's like, it's almost like a creative exercise and like an exercise in innovation to be like, oh, look, I got this new power toy. What can I do with it that's better for the community? So maybe that looks like, You are tasked with buying something for the company. Make sure that you're spending it with a BIPOC vendor. Maybe it's that you're hiring a role. Refuse to interview before you have BIPOC candidates, right? Like there's a different thing that each of us can do, but for those of us that have more privilege, we need to be more aggressive about the things that we're doing because we should be the kind of people who are interfacing um, for our community. because we're less likely to get, I want to say like heavily racism. It's not a word. <laughs> right, right. Um,
0: yeah. So yeah,
1: that's so like to wrap that all up. I think that your level of risk taking should be proportional to the level of privilege that you have.
0: No. And you know what? That's a that's a really good way to look at it. When I think about, you know, complex topics like this, you know, I'll take at this point, I'll take any form of simplification and really good analogies or even cheesy analogies, because I tend to make some as well. Um, but even just thinking with that, you know, I I think it's one of those things where when we think about allyship and I'll pick on some DNI stuff here in a second we even approach and think about allyship from a homogenous perspective, right? White and Black, or white in this race, or white in that race. But even sometimes allyship comes in the form of not only how you're identifying yourself, but really recognizing that, you know what, I'm definitely, you know, of course I'm mixed, I am a minority as well, but it's like, all right, I realize that, you know, and I'll make an example, I realize that If someone is black and white versus someone who may just be black for all practical purposes, hopefully the person who is mixed race is like, all right, I know I have some things that are unique to my experience. Not only how can I use them to help others, but how can I really come to task and come to terms with, okay, you know what? As much as I may culturally identify, let's just say in this example with being Black, I realize that, you know what, in some assumptions, some cases, I probably do look like a white person. Not talking about me, y'all. You know what I'm saying. But with that being said, you know, having that sense of allyship, I think it not only goes into what I cheesily think of allyship 2.0 or 3.0, but really getting people to understand that, hey, you know what? there are levels to this. There are advantages to being, you know, mixed race. There are arguably disadvantages, probably more so lots of confusion. I would probably assume you'd be like, oh man, I'm not this. Okay. You know what? Let me talk to you. But even just thinking about that, you know, how, what are some of your, and I'm sure you probably have lots of these, but during the course of your own life, what are some of the myths that you've heard? Not only about you know, mixed people in general. But what are what are some of your your favorite myths that haven't been proven to be true that you've heard or came across?
1: Oh my God! I was gonna joke and I was gonna be like, we're prettier.
0: Um. <laughs> No. uh-oh there you go stirring the pot look it's uh, gonna be a headline no, no, no. it's gonna be like just, Aubrey says mixed-race people look better than non-mixed-race oh, right. I know that's
1: <laughs> Twitter is gonna go wild um no but I think one of the things that I think is actually really true is we tend mm-hmm. to be really good at thinking contextually and mm-hmm. looking outside of binary systems because like our existence kind of breaks down binary systems so I think that's like a superpower that you get. Mm -hmm. I also think there's something just to loop back to a point you made that I really appreciated. I think it's important when you live at the very edge of the identity that you also need to remain contextually flexible based on the community and whether they feel in that moment that your experiences are close enough to theirs to be included. So like there have been some BIPOC um, like communities where I'm like, you know what, that's actually not for me like the processing or the moments that are happening like I'm not actually the person who they want to center who they want in that space and like that's not my favorite feeling in the world but it's also important that I as a uh, as like a mixed but white passing person hold space and respect for that so I think that's just a, a behavior that I want to call out that is somewhat unique to that experience and yeah People just don't think about that, but you have to accept the complexity of the contextuality Mm -hmm. of that relationship.
0: No. And you know what, even as I think about this and I'll kind of broaden it up some, you know, this is, of course, we all know this by now, lots of levels, lots of depth, but even just when we think about, you know, how do we make the next generation better, right? In terms of teaching little ones and all that, whether you're a parent or not, because this is going to affect everybody. You know, at at what point or at what kind of intersection would you begin to introduce, I would say, these more complex kind of nuances to not only the younger people, but look, even as adults, sometimes we need to get this really well because growing up, and I'm sure a lot of you that are listening, growing up, you know, it's very black or white, no pun intended, right? It's very it's oversimplified looking back on it, but it's necessary to a degree. You know, I don't know if I would break down the complexities of race to my four-year-old <laughs> or my or my, or my soon-to-be two-year-old at this point. But it's also one of those things where it's like, okay, as you begin to, whether child or adult or whatever, as you begin to lay that foundation, at what points do you say, okay, you know, we learned about, boy, girl, long hair, short hair, uh, white, black, whatever the case may be. Now let me add some more to that, right? It's not just addition or subtraction. How do we kind of navigate, and we even see this in workplaces too, to a certain extent. How do we kind of navigate getting or really determining when to, okay, let's make this more complex and not lose people?
1: I think Once you give people the basic foundational tools, I think allowing them to have at least a little bit of complexity is actually helpful because I think so much of the work that we do in equity and justice, which I think is just so much of what HR and human work should be, is it's about contextual complexity, and so if you don't give people that tool they're never going to like get it and be able to make their own decisions. And I think my, the point that I think is really magical is when we give people the complexity of teaching them intersectionality, because sometimes people are like there's this, uh, this essay I guess it's called like the it's like the invisible knapsack of white privilege and I think Mm -hmm. it can be a useful tool but that one confuses some class things with race things and in that case I've seen folks I've taught who are like oh but I grew up poor and so I had these disadvantages so I don't have white privilege whereas if we layer intersectionality in there you can be like yeah you know what you didn't have class privilege you lacked that privilege But now let's imagine that you were racialized in addition to also being economically disadvantaged. And suddenly there's a framework and an understanding and it becomes less of an us versus them conversation and a conversation that goes back to this idea of how do we use our unique positions to manifest our unique version of allyship.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true. And and there's definitely a lot of efficacy in this that needs to be unpacked. There's a lot of just, you know, a whole bunch of real talk that needs to go on. And it's one of those things where I try to tell people, whether you're mixed race or not, you know, think about those things that you're most excited about, right? What are you most proud of as we think about these different labels or layers rather of race, right, of identity, of gender, et cetera. Um, there was an earlier episode, and escaping my mind, I'll, I'll drop this in the comments, but I asked, um, it was one of the first episodes where I had someone white on there, and I was like, you know what? He brought up a, it was an early D&I conversation. He, he brought up the point of, you know, hey, you know what, as a white man, I understand that I have certain powers, privileges, things like that, but I'll also challenge my own people what, what are you most excited about when you think about being white? And that question not only struck me just as a, as a Black person, because, you know, if you ask, you know, Black people, maybe Latinx people, right? Different kinds of people that, for practicality purposes, you know, that are non-white in this example, oh, we could go down the list, right? Culture, da-da-da-da-da, food, da da, da 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 right? And just, you know, run off a list. But one of the things that we were talking about as he asked that question to other white people, and I brought up this point as well, I try to tell people, even on this episode, you know, sometimes we run into situations, especially when we think about some of those white based conversations. That, hey, sometimes, and for those of you that are listening, if you ever ask a question like that, and someone starts to define or answer that racial based question in, in terms of nationality, like they'll say, hey, I'm Italian, right? Or German or something like that. They didn't answer it about race because there's a lot of context and history and stuff with that, right? So even if I were to go out and say, hey, you know what, Aubrey or whoever, you know, what, what, about, what about you being white? Are you most proud of, it? right? Granted, Aubrey, you could be like, yo, that is only one piece of me. I'm gonna give you the whole answer. But it really gets back to the point when I think about, hey, you know what? Some of these conversations, even as adults, they can be very tricky to to really navigate. And as we're as we're growing as people, as we're globalizing, there's different layers and context with this. Even and I'll pick on the black experience, right? A U.S. black experience isn't the same as a European one, right? Isn't the same as you know black people that born and raised even to this day from Africa, for example, right versus a black person that's born and raised in in the Asian continent, right? So there's so many different levels of complexity. I think it's really amazing to just really call out and celebrate, but here's the thing, Aubrey, and I'm definitely gonna pick on you about this. As we're evolving as people, doing a lot of DNI things, we know folks are gonna mess up. Folks are gonna make assumptions, Folks are gonna misspell folks' names wrong, uh, mispronunciate people's names wrong, get the get the racial identity part wrong, right? Just a lot of wrongness. How do we show grace to those people when we mess up, when we slip and not demonize them?
1: Yeah, I think I think what it comes down to is partially like first giving yourself yourself grace to like take space away from that person if you need it. So like. Don't make the, like, I love the idea of getting to compassion, getting to grace, but I don't think that should be like your primary and first objective, because then we're asking probably people to ignore their own responses that deserve care and attention. Um, But I think the, and this is the way I think about it and what helps me because I spend a lot of time with folks who are at the very beginning of their journey um, and I'm sort of their coach. To help move them past the initial discomfort and the fragility and, and the yada yada, um, but for me, I focus on there's one less thing for me to do if this person grows. Like it's less work for me. <laughs> it's less work for me to give
0: right. some
1: grace <laughs> and like be a steward mm-hmm. or. Uh, you know, someone who helps them grow. So that for me is, I can't necessarily say that like everyone else should have this motivation because I think that's a little entitled, but, um, but like for me, that's the motivation is the reward of seeing someone be a better version of themselves. And ultimately no one's ever going to try or take a risk without failing and failing repeatedly, in fact. And so we have to kind of, do the hard work of saying offering grace is the price of people's growth in many cases. I think what's really important about that is every individual gets to decide what capacity they have for that. And it's important that we respect people's self-determination on that.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And even just thinking about, you know, the, the copious amounts at this point of DNI related work. You know, for me, maybe some of you all that are listening, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, show me the data, right? Show me the raw data. Where are we at versus where we want to be versus the impact, right? Because the more we know, the better we should be, right? The more you know, oh, but with that being said, you know, I think it's one of those things where sometimes this can get really tricky when I think about, you know, how does this show up when we talk about uh, de and reporting? Right. How do we how do we ensure data integrity when we do have, you know, lots of different options? And I'll even say just on applications. Right. Anybody can pick any race they want, multiple races, um, you know, if they're Hispanic or not Hispanic. And I'm going to ask you a question about that in just a moment. But how do we how do we as folks who are in this space or partner with people in this space, how do we know when folks are just finessing versus just trying it? Or, you know, how do we, how do we know that the, the racial data that we have is what it is, right? And, and, and what are some of those things to kind of navigate through?
1: Yeah, oh, that's a good question. So I would say there's this like complex thing to think about when we want to solve that problem. And part of it is that like the way that we determine someone's identity is by asking them. And so on the way that I think about it with DEI is like, I'm not anti the idea that someone could be faking their data, but I can't prove it. And the potential harm of me like challenging that person and being like, "Oh, I don't think you're black enough to like check the black box." Here. <laughs> like, can you right. imagine? What oh my
0: goodness! Like, what a what a shit show in the and HR leader that looks
1: like me <laughs> like walking up and having that right. conversation is the most inappropriate. And so, so I think that you bring up a point that is really valid and also not something we can solve for because when we look at the trade offs, there's an obvious harm versus like likely pretty small potential harm. Like, you know, there's the worst case scenario if someone is opted in is they end up in an ERG meeting that, you know, isn't really for them. And if they're being disruptive or terrible, like the ERG can vote them out. That would be a really unideal process, but it would be one that was available. Um, Or maybe they benefit from a professional development program, for example. Um, I don't think that's great, but I also wonder like that person probably needs some help if they're like carrying on this kind of farce about it that's not based in like their experience or their genetics Mm -hmm. and other things so like part of me wants to be like it would be weird and it would be a bad use of resources but right into the habit of challenging people's identities just feels really icky to me
0: Absolutely. And it definitely is, is is very, it's always something that I kind of wonder about. And you know, to your point, you know, worst case scenario, right? People are out of ERGs. Data may be skewed, but hey, that's why you build in margin of error when you think about it. For those who are really, really analytical, they know what I'm talking about. But even just thinking about things like that, do you remember a few years back? I think it was where does she live at? I think it was in Washington or somewhere. You remember the whole um, drama about Rachel Dolezal and all that, where, you know, you know, basically for those of you who don't remember or don't know, um, essentially what it all boiled down to, white lady perpetrated as or had a self-identity as a Black woman ascended the ranks. (laughs) This was the amazing part, ascended the ranks of, I believe, the their local NAACP chapter, the cat was out of the bag, right? Fallout ensued, and and it's just one of those things where I'm like, you know what? When I think about this whole thing that we've been talking about, yes, examples and situations like that are rare, but it's one of those things where to your point, it's like, you know, you can't really challenge people to a certain degree on identity, but this also brings up the notion of the idea we got identity versus race, right? And that may be cultural identity versus race. You know, I, I know and maybe you know as well, I know plenty of plenty of white people and Latinx and folks and all that that might have grown up in the hood, right? They might have not had a typical, you know, typical experience relative to people's assumptions of what A white experience should be like, right? You know, to your point earlier, you know, I could I could get the sentiment on why if a white person grows up poor, they may not see themselves right away as having white privilege, but we know that it's so much deeper than that. And I always think about, you know, being mindful and talking about those different kinds of examples because you know what? At the end of the day, it's 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 gonna be out there. It it really is. So it definitely makes for. Continuous and really interesting discussion going forward. But look, I'm going to pivot really quick because I know we can get into this all day, every day, really. But when we, when we, when we zoom out a little bit, you know, I know that you do a lot of great work in and I know that you also touch uh, mental health as well. One of the things that struck me when we first met and had a chance to talk is you came from the perspective of mental health being an asset, not a disability. What do you mean by that? And how does that manifest?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think it can, I feel a little bit also like, por que no los dos about it? Like, why not both? So like, so for folks online who don't know, I'm bipolar type one, and I try to be pretty open about it, because I think there's a lot of stigma around disability. And so I just want, like, I don't know if someone wants to see a story of someone else doing something because I don't have a lot of those and I hope other people do. Um, but anyway, I'm I'm type one and it is a disability in the in the sense that it causes me to have to do my life differently. I have impacts, you know, I have to be careful about changing time zones in ways that other people don't. But it also has given me a set of abilities with that. So... We're, we, it's easy to think about with disabled people, like what we don't have, but also think about the ways that we've had to innovate and be creative and the skills that we've developed because we had to do things in a different way. Um, and so that's something I, I would just encourage people to think about. And I think if more people talked about disability or were open about disability and seeing it in that light, we would see a lot more people uh, willing to identify as disabled because we know that about 17% of the population is disabled, 17% doesn't identify that way because there's not a lot of social advantages to it. Um, And so, yeah, that's what I would say is like we need to change our perspective on it because I think that could go a long way towards helping us change attitudes that could help us create more service provisions and just a better community for disabled people.
0: Right. I agree. And, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, whether it's the Black community, I can, of course, relate to a certain extent on you know how we always thought you know don't go to counseling counseling for crazy people right and even how that manifests in I would say collectively all of our lives not just black folks um but even just when we think about bipolar you know it's not a theme where you know bipolar people are automatically crazy you know it's not yeah. you know sometimes here's the thing and I like I like picking them like the film and entertainment industry you know they they be extra sometimes, you know. It's not like it's not like in one of the examples I think of really fast, it's not like you know, we're talking about uh what movie was that? Like one of the Spider-Man movies, and you had that green goblin, right? And the character, he was cool oh, yeah. at some point in time, and then the little voice, the green goblin changed into something else, or even when we talk about like a Dr. Jekyll and Miss and uh, Mr. Hyde, right? I don't think it's always so extreme right? So even when we think about normalizing and really getting comfortable with other disabilities, bipolar, whatever the case may be, what are what are some gems and nuggets that you would have for folks who may not identify as one who has a disability, but how can they become better allies to folks who do? And how can we collectively normalize, normalize some of those things?
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing is like, diversify or I guess disable your inputs so are you reading stories from disabled writers are you following in your social media disabled thinkers disabled activists so that's the first thing is like you need to take the step of peeking in on the disabled perspectives that are being openly offered to you so that you can start learning about what matters to that community and what that experience feels like. The next thing I would say is find an area of your life where you can have a positive impact on the disability community. Maybe that starts with a philanthropic donation. $100, you find an organization or $5 or $1. Um, Maybe it's that you join a mentoring program or you support a volunteering day at work. So I think what I would say is start, think about what you can uniquely do and then make sure that you don't do nothing but the first part about diversifying those inputs is important because you want to make sure that you're not sort of foisting an abled perspective about what the community needs, but rather listening to the community and saying like, how do you want me to show up? And then following that instruction.
0: Right, absolutely. No, I think those are, those are incredible words. And you know, we, we got work to do as people, right? You know, this, this type of conversation, this episode, you know, I always like to make sure that I'm clear. You know, we, are, we aren't demonizing folks. You know, we, we extend grace. We try to meet people where they're at. Sometimes people are jerks and it gets a little challenging sometimes. But, you know, we, we try our best to to meet people where they're at. You know, this, this conversation, whether it's about uh, mental health, whether it's about race, whether it's about identity, it's, it's not something that's going to be taken care of in one shot. And, you know, even with this, Aubrey, even with some of these points that we brought up, that could be a whole podcast by itself, much less an episode. So even just thinking about that, you know, I'm excited to have had the conversation with you. Definitely a voice in the community. But before we get out of here, what's next for Aubrey? What's next for Culture Amp? What's going on? What can we expect?
1: Yeah, so um, what's next for me? I'm going to be continuing to be at culture amp and also consulting with a really wider range of clients. I have some cool projects coming um, in the in the coming year. But for culture amp, I think one of the things I would tell people is to tune in because we are in the middle of pumping out a lot of new, open to sort of the internet to the community DEI resources. So we have lots of new research coming out from the data that we've collected from customers that customers are collecting um, that we hope will really help guide folks to build more effective and sustainable DEI programs. So I'm thrilled at the kind of knowledge that we're going to be able to share that we hope can help people really actually move the
0: needle. Nice. I love to hear it. I love to hear it, and I can't wait to see it. But before we get out of here for real this time, how can people follow you? How can people connect with you? How can those who want to continue the conversation with you find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So two places. You can either go to my website, which is just aubreyblanche.com. Or if you want to listen to some of my opinions and my um, I'm on my digital soapboxes on Twitter at A.D. Blanche with an E on the end.
0: Sounds good. I love it. And for those of you that are listening to Young Black HR for the first time, the second time, the 10th time, I don't care. Follow us, interact with us, keep the conversation going. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can find me there too. But guess what? Here's how you can find Young Black HR. I just gave you a hint. You ready? You ready? It's at Young Black HR. Come on, y'all. Follow us, keep the conversation going. And this has been another great episode. I love the conversation. I appreciate it, Ari, of the Young Black HR podcast. Make sure you connect with today's guests on social media accounts, and if you haven't already, bookmark and check out our website at honesthumanresources.com for your career-related needs. Also, connect with Young Black HR on your favorite platform at, you guessed it, Young Black HR. You can locate us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, I am your host, Matthew Kirby, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation tune in to next week's episode.